What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Men's Wellness Collective Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Jordan Lewis, along with my two colleagues and friends, Dalen Bernie and Kayla Bodego Kay. And we uh, are going to dive right in with our second installment of Love Like a Man, our mini-series on love, relationships, all things uh, of the heart uh, related to manhood and whatnot. And we have a special guest today joining us, my friend, fellow therapist, Jess Jones. Jess, how are you doing today? I'm a little nervous, not going to lie. <laughs> when you said like all things men in love, I was like, oh gosh, that sounds intimidating, but I will do my best <laughs> as a woman. <laughs> yes, you are our, uh, you are our honorary female voice for the evening oh, yeah. to uh, to lend your your clinical and personal expertise on men. So we're counting on you to set us straight and help us figure out what's going on with us. I am in charge of the male population right now. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure. No, that's fine. Yeah, no, I welcome a challenge. So let's go. Uh, before we jump in, pleasantries, Caleb and Dalen, uh, how are y'all doing today? You're doing all right. I uh, had a new life experience today. I donated plasma today. Um, so that was uncomfortable, but not terrible. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Doing all right, man. We working. working. We're working extra hard over here, but we working. That's it. <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. Glad to hear everybody's doing well. Um, we're very excited to discuss today's topic. In our introductory episode last week, we talked a little bit about uh, attachment, but today we're going to kind of take a deeper dive into attachment and then how it shows up into adult relationships. And, you know, I wanted to bring you on for this conversation, Jess, because a couple years ago, you and I had an interesting conversation on my personal podcast all about attachment. Um, so I'd love to turn it over to you just to kind of start out with what has drawn you and interested you about attachment in both your personal or professional experience? Yeah. Um, so I would say they're gonna, obviously going to tie into each other, as we all know. Um, I think that I started um, as a therapist being like, I'm so sick of therapists talking about it's all about childhood and blah, 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 blah. And like, that's so cliche and overdone. And I, after a while, obviously was like, oh, can I curse? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh shit, like it's, it's all about childhood. Like it's all about that original dynamic with your caretaker. And like, I really did not want to be one of those therapists. It's like, well, tell me about your mother. Like, that's really important, but like, it so is. And I recognize that in my professional experience with my clients, but I also recognize it so much in just my own romantic relationships and just recognizing like, just how much like those early experiences affect your attachment style and affect just how you interact with I mean not only friendships but I think romantic love um more specifically um so so yeah I'm really I'm really glad that we're talking about that today because I think that that romantic love specifically in attachment is what I've seen the most professionally and what I've also experienced the most personally so Mm -hmm. Um, attachment has a bit, has been a really big thing. I think like 
I think that it has to be a big thing. You know, I, I kind of came into the field kind of fighting it like, yeah, I don't know. Like, it's not all about attachment. Like, that's so overdone. But I think like attachment like has to be part of the conversation. It just does because everything, everything revolves around around those core attachment wounds and initial um, caregiver relationships. So so as much as I fought it, um, I am now um, I'm sold um so i'm a believer you're on board i'm on board yeah yeah absolutely absolutely uh uh dalen what about for you as as someone who uh is is just finishing you know your licensure really diving headfirst into your clinical practice um and just your personal experience being the only married person uh part of our group today what what have you seen and what is attachments what's your what's your insight into attachment been like yeah um i don't think i heard a single word about any kind of attachment theory or ideas until i was in grad school learning to become a therapist um which is probably part of the problem no one knows about this unless you go out and find it or you know listen to a podcast like this um so I think just learning that and learning all of these things and it relating back to my childhood, I kind of start piecing it together and it's just, it kind of makes sense. It's like, this is everything I knew. So of course I'm still doing the things that I did when I was a kid because those have been my experiences, but just, I don't know, it's been really interesting to know that and then navigate my marriage. So we had been married uh, like a year when I start, actually not even a year when I started my master's program. So like, we're still pretty much getting to know each other. So I'm figuring out myself and my background and then also her, but we're doing that together. So that was really helpful. So I think for anybody, if you're going to start doing this work and you're in a relationship or starting a relationship, they kind of need, need to be doing the same work. Otherwise you're probably going to outgrow them because you're going to recognize these things. And then they're still stuck in their same attachment flaws is the right word. Just they're, Cycles. cycle yeah but then they're stuck in that cycle and you're trying to get out of it um but then like clinically i think you kind of want to always change it up kind of like just like you said it's like i don't want to be doing the same thing and i don't want it to mm -hmm. always be that but the moment i'm like oh was that kind of like your dad or was that like your mom it's just like oh my god yes and you're like is that really the answer every time and it kind of is yes like, it, it, I feel and, and it's just like like those are always the best ones when someone like kind of starts to talk about their mom or their dad. I'm like, all right, let's like go more. And then like, it's like half the puzzle piece. Like you, yes. when you learn about like one of the parents, you're just like, this makes so much more sense about you. Um, yeah. Cause it's, it's everything. Yeah. 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 It really, it really is everything. And like, I got into grad school and I was like, initially wanting to go into like IO psych. So I was like, I, people can jump off a bridge. I just want to work. With, I want to work with companies. I want to work with numbers. I want to be in HR. I want to like basically just help run like high level executive trainings and all that stuff. And then I got into like our, our theories class and you go through all the different theories. And then when we got to attachment theory, I'm like, this is the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> Everything else is just this. And then some, it's like, even EFT, it's just how you attach yeah. to the people emotionally in your life and your ability or inability to. CBT 
even though I think people think CBT is the coldest form of therapy because it's, you know, it's workbooks and notebooks and there's a path and the therapist has like a, a place that they're taking you to. CBT too is like your ability as a therapist to attach to the person and then help them guide them down this path. Even though like, I know some people who are just very like psychodynamic and psychoanalytic and they're very like, we don't do that. I'm like, yes, you do. <laughs> So I, I think attachment is just so, it's so good and, and, and so important for us to understand how attachment plays a role in this piece. Because I was, I was watching a, a, one of the very few TikTok therapists I actually enjoy. And he was talking about when he was in his marriage, he and his, he and his wife went to counseling. And all the therapist did was have them like write down their gripes with each other. And then they started to talk about the gripes and all the therapists did reflect was like, Oh, so this isn't about her. This is about you and your dad. Oh, yeah. oh this isn't about her. This yeah. is about you and your mom. This is about Rejection, man. and it has it had like every relationship issue they had had nothing yeah. to actually do with them. It was just yeah. a bunch of miscommunication while they were yeah. functioning out of a place of hurt from their own primary attachments. And so, yeah, while we would like to say attachment is only one piece, it is such a major piece. So I'm, I'm looking mm -hmm. forward to hearing from you and learning from you and about just how you see attachment in the world. Yeah, we're social creatures, right? So like, if you really think about it, uh, there's no, no one lives in a bubble and, and no one's in kind of, Every, every situation, every challenge that we see clinically um, is going to be in the context of relationship with some other individual, whether mm -hmm. it's work or whether it's family, parenting, early childhood stuff, romantic relationships. It's very rare that someone's challenges that they're bringing to therapy is just in isolation. And even if there's internal wounds and internal challenges, those were brought on through some relationship with somebody else. Right. And so, um, yeah, to echo what everyone else has already said, attachment is is arguably everything, depending on who you ask. But um, at the very least, a big chunk, you know, of the puzzle. So maybe before we jump in, you know, to uh, the deep dive specifics, uh, Jess, would you be comfortable kind of giving a layout for people of the four different attachment styles and then how they might show up for someone who's listening? That's an adult. Like, how could they know? which of these attachment styles they are. Yeah, so um, there's secure and insecure. Um, and then within insecure attachment, there's three different types. So we have anxious attachment, avoidant attachment, and disorganized attachment. Um, I will be speaking professionally from disorganized attachment as a person with disorganized attachment. So secure um, statistically is 50% of the population. I don't know how much I buy that, but that's what all the books are saying. So we might need to do a little 2023 redo, especially after the pandemic and such. Um, so anxious attachment um, is going to be pretty self-explanatory. It's going to be a lot of a lot of more what you might see as like clinging behaviors, um, a lot of like, please don't leave me. I will do anything that I can for you. It's a lot of disownment of self and just um, kind of a, a attachment to the other person of like, 
I am so afraid of being abandoned. I am going to give myself at the expense of myself. Mm. Um, avoidant is a little bit of an opposite. It's afraid of loss of self. So it's, I, I want to keep myself. I don't want to lose myself in this. Um, and so it's kind of like opposite of behaviors. It's a lot of distancing, a lot of projection of anger, a lot of pushing away. Um, because usually people that are avoidant are afraid of losing themselves and they're afraid of enmeshment, mm. um, which again, typically goes back to, um, family of origin, um, disorganized, which is my favorite. Um, I am a little bit biased, but it's also my favorite to work with and it is the most rare of the attachment styles. And it's a little bit of a mixture between attachment, I'm sorry, between anxious and avoidant. So I like to call it somewhat of a pendulum swing. Um, disorganized people don't really know what they want in, in their movement and in their relationships. Um, I've heard it explained as, um, anxious mindset with avoidant behaviors. Mm -hmm. So there's the anxious, oh gosh, I'm so afraid I'm going to be left. But instead of acting anxious, they act avoidant and they push away. So that's where you're going to get a lot of those push-pull behaviors that you see with disorganized clients. Um, so it's, it's really, really, really confusing for the person that has disorganized attachment. It's probably even more confusing for the person that's in a relationship with disorganized attachment because it's a lot of mixed messages. It's a lot of them changing their minds. It's a lot of, I love you, don't leave me, but also I hate you and I don't want to see you again. And so it can be super confusing um and disorganized attachment is usually born out of very unpredictable caregivers mm. and so for me it was my mom who was um very unpredictable we have a great relationship now but when i was a child we did not and i never knew what version of my mom i was going to get on day to day i never knew if it was going to be my loving parent or if it was going to be someone super duper cold and it changed so often. And so I learned from a very young age to not only I loved my caregiver because I needed to for survival, but I was also terrified of her. So disorganized attachment is also called fearful avoidant because there's that core um, wound of I love my caregiver, but I fear her or them or him at the same time. And so I cannot trust them that they will not hurt me they might also love me, but they might also hurt me. And so it's a lot of back and forth. Um, and it's a very confusing, confusing time. So, um, yeah, those are the, those are the four different styles. Again, um, I'll talk a little bit about secure. I guess that's important. <laughs> um, secure attachment is, is going to be, um, I feel like I can like give examples of secure attachment more and I can explain it, but a good example of secure attachment is if you bring something to someone that has secure attachment, you bring like, hey, you did this thing that hurt me. Someone who has secure attachment can take accountability very easily. They can listen very easily and they typically aren't going to be projecting any of their issues onto you. So if they if you say that you hurt them or they hurt you, they will most likely say, I can totally see your perspective. I can see how what I said was hurtful, I'm sorry, and I will work on not doing that again. Um, someone with insecure attachment that you bring that to might have a response like, um, I didn't mean that, I can't believe you would say that to me, um, you know that's not my intention, um, you know who I am as a person, that's not what I meant, and it's going to be like a lot of 
reflection, deflection, projection, all of the defense mechanisms flying around. So uh, again, 50% of the population secure. I don't know about that. We'll have to take it up with the um, textbook writers, but yes, those, <laughs> those are the four. <laughs> One thing that, that I would add just to which Excellent breakdown. I appreciate that. I think people are definitely going to be able to resonate with the way you broke that down. Um, the way that I would also add on the secure attachment part that I've heard that I really enjoy is the appropriate response to distance and closeness, right? So yes. someone with secure attachment, when there's distance, they say, well, I want you to be closer. And then when there's closeness, they're able to actually embrace it and kind of sit in that space. So it's the example of like a baby when their mom leaves, they miss mom and they cry. And then when mom comes back, they're able to be comforted. Um, so I would just, you know, add that part is kind of a good way to kind of summarize what it looks like in action too. I love that. And I, I want to add on to that too, of like um, secure attachment when their loved one is gone, they miss them, but they know that their relationship is okay. They know that the other person's not going anywhere and that they're just gone right now. And that's okay. For all the other types, distance is a threat. So you're gone and um, anxious is going to be anxious. Avoidant is going to be somewhat relieved and disorganized is going to be some, somewhat in the middle. It's going to be, I'm anxious that you're gone, but when you come back, I want you to leave again. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a lot of a lot of back and forth. But yes, the distances, that's a great way to, to explain it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and here's where I'm excited to kind of crack open the egg, bring in, you know, uh, Dalen and Mookie into the conversation in a more uh, and kind of open it up for all of us to dialogue back and forth is, okay, so attachment as it relates to the Men's Wellness Collective, as it relates to men's mental health. What's so interesting about this and why I'm excited about this conversation is a woman listening to this has probably dated a person, dated a man who falls somewhere on one of these different styles. And men listening to this either are dealing with their own attachment style or are also in relationship with another individual who is navigating their own different attachment style. And so like no matter what angle that you're coming from with this, from the perspective of men's mental health, um, I think it's a very fruitful and kind of powerful conversation to be had. So um, maybe we could start because Jess was so um, gracious to kind of offer her personal experience. Uh, maybe we could all start with kind of sharing where we've fallen traditionally on that spectrum, um, our personal attachment styles and what that's looked like in either our personal, professional, romantic lives. Kind of start there before we go clinical on everybody. Yeah. Ooh. All right. I think. Go ahead, Mookie. And then I think for like the most part of my life, I assumed when I, well, I assumed I functioned from a healthy attachment point because I had lots of, lots of caring caregivers. Um, my parents were always present in my life. There was distance and disconnection, but they were always there. Um, and then when I started learning about attachment styles, I was like, oh, you can have different attachment styles to different caregivers. I thought it was just like one, like you just, it's like you get what you get and you stuck with it and then you got to deal with the consequences. And I learned, no, 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 no. You can have like a secure attachment with one or anxious, whatever. And then the same or different attachment with another caregiver. And then those attachment styles then begin to play out differently with how you relate to them. 
And then I learned that those attachment styles could evolve. And I'm like, dog, what is happening? How, how is any of this real? It is just a crapshoot. And so for the majority of my experience, I think I functioned, at least I assumed I functioned with a secure attachment to my mom. And I, what I thought was an anxious attachment to my dad because my dad lived on a different continent for a different, for a number of years. And then we came here to America and then he was here and he was gone. So I was like, I don't really know where homeboy is half the time. I've told the story to my friends about this. There was one day I walked out of my front door, walked out of my bedroom. I saw my pops. I was like, Hey, I'm going to school. I'll see you later. He's like, yeah, cool. I'm taking a trip. I'll see you later. I'm like, yeah, fine. This is normal. Nine o'clock that night, homeboy texted me a picture with Will Smith. I'm like, whose man's is this? What is it? What is happening? <laughs> uh, hey, so why I, have I've known you three years, bro? Why haven't we met Will Smith yet? That's what I'm saying. I, I haven't even met Will Smith yet. <laughs> we get get Jimmy on the line. We need to change that. Yeah, right yeah, yeah. We need to. Yeah. We need to. We need to hit up pops. Hit up Will. Um, we call him Uncle Will now. <laughs> um, but no, I think the more I learned about attachment styles, the more I began to see it, and how I related to my friend group. And then I started to see it in relationships. And I definitely have seen a shift um, as I go through my own work and my own therapy. I think I started off with someone who was very anxious in relationship because for so long I functioned out of a place of not belonging. So it's very much that, as you said earlier, that anxious, don't leave me, don't abandon me. I'll do anything that self abandonment. I'll do anything to make the, uh, the, the, the relationship work. And the way I described it is that like, I used to say this, I'm happy when everyone else around me is happy. So I'll do whatever it takes to make them happy. And I mm -hmm. thought that was actually genuinely a healthy way of functioning because I come from a collectivistic culture collectivistic cultures value some self-sacrifice for the betterment of the whole so for me i never saw anything wrong with functioning from a place of oh this is something i want this is a relationship i want so therefore it is up to me to do what i need to do to make the relationship work not realizing it led to years of anxious attachment to where like i would do everything for the person and they leave then feel abandoned and then do anything to like try and either get them back or feel good without them and then if they pop back up again it's just like okay cool here we are in the same cycle as i begin to like now analyze my relationships of the last mm, few years i think it's way more disorganized than even i was willing to admit and like it, it in, 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 the, in therapy i've been talking i was like man i don't really know if i am functioning from the place i think i am and it wasn't until you just like broke down disorganized the way you did i'm like oh yeah okay in certain relationships i function from a disorganized point there are things in a person that i see that i'm like oh i see that i like that i want that and then when I'm not around them, I'm like, mm, I don't know if I really want that. And I think that's, mm, that's, yeah. that's, 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 that's something that I've been working on. And I'm trying to understand more about like, well, why is it that like there's certain relationships that 
I feel like I'm very secure in and then other relationships I, I function disorganized in. And again, through doing therapy, guys, go to therapy. It's great. It's hard. It's a lot of it's a lot of stuff, but just go to therapy. I've realized that there's certain parts of my internal self. We've talked about our internal world. There's certain parts of myself that feel comfortable and secure when I have what I think I want. Mm. And that comes in conflict with, oh, is this what you want? Or is this what everyone else has told you you actually want? And I'm just like, mm. come on, dog, what is going on? Why can't I figure out what I want? Well, it's actually, that's that's the hard part, right? That's the work. It's like, okay, this is what you want or is this what you tell yourself you want because of the environment you grew in, because of the attachment you have to this person or this person? which is very often what I see in the clinical world professionally is like, oh, well, my dad always did this. Okay. What is it you like about your partner? Well, I like that he's not about me. He's not like my dad. Oh, so you like that he's not like your dad, but you want him to do everything your dad did. So it's an unwinnable battle for him. If he's too much like your dad, you don't like it. If he's not enough like your dad, then you 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 become disattracted to the thing that attracted to you him in the first place. And so it, it those those understanding how those primary figure attachments play out yeah. is so important. I love that. Yeah. And I, I think too what you said about different types of relationships having a different attachment style. Um, this is years ago. When when I'm single, I am like so stable all of my relationships with my friends are so secure and i'm good and one of my one of my best friends ali i remember her telling me we're both very emotional we're enneagram fours if anyone knows about the enneagram and so highly emotional people she came to me one day she said i don't understand how you're so stable at this point i'm single right and i laughed at her and i said wait until i get in a relationship and like i was partially joking but also i'm now in a relationship and i feel psychotic like i am i lost my damn mind like when i'm single i'm so stable i'm so secure it's like i i can do anything like i i, I know what to say i know what to do i know how to interact in romantic relationships all of that goes out the window so i think it's mm. i think it is really important um that you bring that up Kayla, that there can be different attachment styles with different people depending on depending on the context and the type so yeah it makes that's, a lot I, that's very true i do yeah i was gonna say just kind of thinking about yeah my attachment styles i would definitely say very secure like parents both great there a lot still together you know saw that healthy marriage so like i was i don't know if this is a thing but sometimes i felt like i was overly secure in romantic relationships like i'd be dating somebody i'd be like oh yeah this is it i'm in like no questions asked i'm just like blindly jumping in with both feet and then people would be like what 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 are you doing i'll be like this is it this is how you do this you just go all in like from the beginning um so i think that kind of hurt me in some ways of realizing like not everyone's ready for that so then like yes Bigger, you know, especially like in middle school, like, you know, I'd get a girlfriend and it was just like, she's the one. And everyone's like, no, dude, that's not how this works. Well. Um, <laughs> um, and then I think looking back, kind of just like on my friendships with men. Um, so I grew up primarily an only child. Uh, we lived far outside of town. 
um, played very competitive sports, but I played soccer with kids that weren't in my grade. So like I kind of had multiple different friend groups and never felt like I fit in. So I think I was kind of turned avoidant with men in my life because I was like, I don't need them. Like I had all these no close relationships. So it was just, I didn't ever seek anybody out. And I still struggle with that today. Like I'll make friends and I'm just, I don't ever think to like, you know, hit people up on the weekends or call people if I'm struggling. It's just, oh no, I'm fine. I don't need anybody. Like I got this, you know, I got my relationship and that's all I need. Um, So I think I've probably overcompensated in one area and then lacked in another area. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's so important to point out in that, like, yeah, how, how, again, how it all functions differently. Right. And we look actual. It's so, it's so, it's so, oh man, too many words. Calm down, relax. I'm having too much fun right now. Um, when we get into romantic relationships, we function like a totally different human being than when we function with our our friend groups. And sometimes that shit can be jarring to the people around us. They're like, who the hell is this? Where, where, where did all this come from? And again, if, 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 if we're being honest, like those attachments are all going to try and satiate an unmet need, right? We've talked about parts and needs and, 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 and how our managers and our, and our protectors and, and, and our outliers all function, right? If we're gonna, if we're gonna, if we're gonna pile it on, right? You might have a protective part that's saying, oh, I've got this relationship. I don't need nobody else because relationships mm-hmm. with men in your life were disorganized or with whatever. So therefore, if disorganized attachments make you feel off, your protective part is gonna kick into high gear. And then your manager is not able to function properly because they're not able to put into proper context what's actually going on. Mm-hmm. I like so how we're like- right now that you're bringing up <laughs> yeah. parts work. I'm so happy. We love yeah. parts work over here. Here at the Men's oh, yeah. London Collective, we love parts work. We're all about parts, yeah. That's my main modality, so that's awesome to hear. And I think too about something being everything, like that parts work is Yes. Yeah. I find myself clinically always reaching a point with a client. I'll say it I said it out loud last week. Like I've been working with this client for uh probably like six months or so, and he says something that prompted me to like, uh, we need to do IFS today. Like this is inner child. And I literally mm-hmm. go, it, I, I go, there it is. And he's like, what? And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I knew we'd get here eventually. <laughs> he's like, what are you talking about, bro? And then I showed it to him, and he's like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. This makes all the sense in the world. <laughs> I was like, I probably shouldn't do that, like say it out loud. But um, I recognize, too, what I also think is coming up for me when we're talking about the different contexts that these attachments can go, can show up in. The thing I've been reflecting on is intensity as well, right? So, like, I would say my experience was growing up, I probably had anxious attachment light, meaning I like diet anxious attachment. Like, I never feared abandonment because my parents were so present in everything that I did. Like, high school, college, never missed an event, never missed a basketball game. Like, we're always there. Cool, Jordan. I know. (laughs) Yet, especially with my dad, there was also this notion that like his full admiration of me 
was always felt like this little carrot that was like, mm, I see little glimpses like proud of you, but you know, mm. you could do better. That mm. but and yeah. so it was like this this diet anxious attachment of like, can you just give me the full thing? And so it was never detrimental in my life, like super secure friendships until I got into romantic relationships. And then that those that context magnified that anxious attachment by like 20. And that's where I see most of like my problematic, if you will, or maladaptive sort of behaviors come out that never really showcase themselves in my relationship with my dad. But there was just something about like these romantic relationships that would trigger that same feeling of like, I'm doing everything I can. Like, why won't you give me this admiration? And when I didn't get it or relationships would fail or whatever, it would crush me because I, I don't think I had had ever had the full experience of feeling like I was like really left until those romantic relationships. So it's always been interesting to me that like, okay, even the intensity of my attachment style can change contextually. It can be a little sliver of it with my, with my, with my parents, but then you put me in a romantic context and it's like, whoa, I really got to get a handle on this. Yeah. Right. So that's, that's yeah. kind of super interesting too. That's so, that's so cool, Jordan, because again, it all, it all just, it really just, as a clinician, I, you just always see the bow get tied on the box and it's just like chef's kiss. Um, that, that, that anxious part, that anxious light functioning, right? That causes discomfort and that causes a way of just like, we're always like, whether we realize it or not, we're always trying to get our unfulfilled needs met. And sometimes it is actually our child self just throwing spaghetti at the wall to see if it sticks. So that's why sometimes like in relationship, you act like a way that you like, I usually don't do this. I don't know why it's because there's something going on internally that your younger self or a part of yourself that has this unmet need really truly feels like, okay, I got it. You either get, you either actually truly get it. And then it's just like this race to chase and get it again, or you get something that looks kind of like it. There's the mirage effect, right? It's like, oh, I think that this person helps actually feel this need. So therefore it becomes about chasing this person to get the need. And then in the chase, you're like, well, why isn't this working? Because it's not actually real. What you're chasing is the absence of realness. Yeah, that's good. And I think too, someone with secure attachment is going to notice that their partner's putting that all of those needs on them. They're like, hey, that's not my job. That's not my job to fulfill all of your needs. That relationship's going to end. Mm. I think too, like when I, I don't know if any of you can relate to this, but when I was growing up, like my, um, I was very isolated um, and my parents were all the time, I was super depressed. And so I put my every fantasy into a romantic relationship from a very young age. I was like, okay, when I find the one, I'll be cured. Like I won't, I won't have depression anymore. I won't be isolated. I'll be loved. And my husband and I are going to ride down the beach on a white horse and everything is going to be hunky dory. And so my everything was just focused on that. And so my first breakup was like, I thought I was dying because it's like, I had this thing 
that I was like, okay, this, this is, this is it. Like this is survival. This person's now responsible for meeting all of my needs that went unmet in childhood. And obviously that's, that's too much. He's like, yo, peace. Like I, I can't, not responsible for that. And I was crushed. Like my world ended because it was all dependent on this one guy to save me. And like that has still followed me. And it's, it's hard now being in a relationship and myself, I get completely abandoned. It's like everything now, everything in my life is now about this relationship because men are responsible for saving me. Like that's always been the thing as a child. And so not healthy plot twist in case anyone didn't recognize. Uh, and it's been, it's been to the detriment. So I think, yeah, you bring up a good point there for sure. Yeah. I want what you to... all think from a, Oh, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. You're going to stay on you the same path. You got it. Well, I was just curious as to, you know, when you look at, that's an interesting perspective just that you give because, um, if, you know, if I could be honest, I, when I look at the landscape of the, dating world and we're particularly you know in fairness disclaimer we're all going to be speaking from the lens today of you know heterosexual male female relationships because that's that's how we identify but i tend to see that same thing play out and i see a lot of women speaking to this notion that um they often feel that men are doing that putting that that pressure onto them um which in large part has prompted, you know, partially, you know, the space that we try to occupy, which is like, let's actually help men from a clinical, like educated perspective versus all the stuff you see nowadays in terms of like women telling men how they have to be, other toxic men telling men how they have to be. And I was interested to hear that for you, you know, it felt like the opposite that in ways you felt yourself putting that onto the men in your life that you were dating how did you see and you can either speak personally or even clinically like how do you see men responding to that kind of thing in relationships um so with my partner he he's like i want you to have a life outside of me so he he's more on the secure side the loving parents whatever so he's coming from like he doesn't want me to be all about him he's like i know like go out it, like like do do what you love like i don't want you to be all about me like i don't want because for him that's a lot of pressure he's like i feel so pressured to perform um and to just be perfect because if i'm not perfect you're gonna fall apart and i don't want to have to not that he doesn't want to have to take care of me because he wants to take care of me, but it's just like he he doesn't want to experience that pressure of like if the relationship is the only thing that I'm focusing on when the relationship isn't doing well, I'm not doing well. And so it's just it, it builds up this like unnecessary pressure um, professionally. Um, it's interesting because when, when I, when I was thinking about joining this podcast today, I was like, man, I can speak about women and attachment all day long and I can get into the details, the specific and the nitty gritty with men and attachment. I can really only give a general professionally. And the reason is I, I think when women come into therapy, they already have a concept of what their attachment style is. Maybe that's because they saw it on TikTok or read a book on it or have been talking with their girlfriends about it, whatever. When men come into therapy, they have nothing. And I, I don't mean that to talk bad about men. I just, I just think that we fail men. Like men really don't have a concept of 
what attachment is a lot of the time. Now that's obviously a generalized statement. Um, but an, an example of that is this, this happened so recently with a male client of mine that, um, he lives with his girlfriend and he works with his girlfriend. So they live together, they carpool to work together, they work together, they carpool back home together, they go to bed, they wake up, do the same thing. He came to me distraught because he was like, I don't want to see her all the time. And he was terrified because he thought he was losing feelings for her or falling out of love. And I had to normalize that. I'm like, bro, you spend every waking moment with her. I was like, if I had to see my boyfriend every waking moment, I would shoot myself. Not literally, but like you need space. And like, it was so relieving for him to hear that. Nobody had ever told him that like, it's okay to not want to be around your partner all the time. The relief that was on his face was just so palpable. And I see that with a lot of my male clients is that they just don't know. They just don't, they haven't had those talks with their friends. They haven't. They haven't had those conversations. They haven't been to therapy. And so they just don't know that when they're experiencing this attachment thing, that it's even attachment in the first place, that it's even an injury or a wound. Yeah. And so it's it tends to be this devastating thing that I'm like, bro, this is actually so normal, so common. You're okay. You still love her. Everything that you've told me points to that, right? And so like, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It can be like really heartbreaking to see my male clients and to talk at to about attachment with them um, because there's just, there's not a concept of it yet. Yeah. And so there tends to be this, whoa, what a response, yeah. which is awesome, but it's also really sad. Yeah. And that's what I'm seeing a lot, like professionally with my men. I think that's, so, that's yeah. so good and so important to say because exactly that, right? When men came in, when men come in, sometimes to our group or individual sessions, they will literally say, I didn't even know this was a thing. And then on the other X, like there's either they don't know or there's the other spectrum of they're bombarded with so many terms that get misused and acculturated into like the popular zeitgeist. Like I've had, I've had clients say one minute I'm the white knight, the next minute I'm a narcissistic abuser. I don't even know how to show up for this person. And I'm just like, bro, define white knight. He goes, what you told me I was sad. So it's like we 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 gotta we gotta give. I think when it comes to men, particularly like becoming more expressive, I think the thing that I accept and love that the culture, particularly like the young Gen Z kids, are really pushing for is that like everyone can and should be in therapy, should get it. But we also gotta give time for some of these dudes to catch up, because I think as you just said, as you just said. Women will talk about these things in their intimate circles. There have times it's been hard for me to call Jordan, and this is my boy. And like, not like professionally and like personally, this is my guy. We talk about deep stuff all the time. And I've struggled to call him. And I'm like, I'm the one yelling at my clients to call their friends. Like I teach a class. We literally collectively teach a class on how to be better about expressing yourself. And then I find myself struggling to express myself, particularly to my male friends. And again, bring it back to attachment. That's because that's not something I experienced in my male attachments. Now with my female friends, I have romantic and like, I think out of all the friends in my friend group, close inner circle and outer circle, 
I have the largest list of platonic female friends. And everyone was like, how were you able to do this? I'm like, dude, I grew up in a culture where, like, it was me and grandpa and 97 women. Like, the women were always around. So, like, it, I, sometimes it's easier and I'm more comfortable talking to my female friends about my emotions because they already know how to do it. So I can text a female friend of mine who's a clinician be like, hey, listen, do you have capacity for me to just literally get on the phone and bullshit for 45 minutes? And she'd be like, absolutely not. I Thank you for asking for the space. I have a small child. I cannot do this. And I'm like, you know what? Great. And then I'm like, well, why didn't I text Jordan? And I'll text her. I'm like, bro, what are you doing? <laughs> and then we get on the phone and we start talking. So I think there is something about knowledge and knowing how to do it and, and being able to have a space. One thing I would appreciate you talking a little bit more about is what conflict with a secure person looks like when they come into relationship because you've been to talk about it personally but like professionally can you talk about how secure people kind of resolve conflict versus secure and the different insecure attachment styles yeah um so professionally it's a little bit more difficult because i don't work a lot with couples mm. um i don't see a ton of couples and so I think that when it comes to secure, neither people lose themselves in the argument and mm. neither people are going to take it too personally. Mm. Um, so there's going to be less time that they're actually fighting and there's going to be um, a pretty quick makeup for the most part. Um, personally, in my personal relationship, I am insecure. My boyfriend, I would say, is a little bit more on the secure side. And I, th <laughs> I think that I turned him anxious attachment <laughs> when we first started dating. Like, I think like I was telling all my friends, I'm like, I thought he was secure, but he's actually anxious. And then I'm like, girl, I think you did that. Like, I think, <laughs> I think you wrecked him. Um, and so I think that that's can be what happens when, so obviously secure tends to um, get with secure, insecure tends to get with insecure. So when there's a secure insecure and the other person who's insecure is not working on themselves, say goodbye because it's, you're just going to bring the other person down mm. and it's not, it's not going to be a healthy, a very yeah. healthy relationship. Yeah. Now, if the other person is willing to work on themselves, then yeah, absolutely you can make that work. But what I see happen is they're secure and there's insecure. Um, I realize that people cannot see me, but I'm, I'm holding my hands up on different levels. Um, and when the insecure person is not willing to look at themselves, all they're going to do is bring that person down. Mm -hmm. um, and that's not fair to the secure person. Yeah. And so if there is a relationship dynamic that's a little wonky like that, as long as the insecure person is willing to look at themselves and do the work, then I would say, like, go for it, no issues. But what I have seen personally and professionally is that the secure person tends to get brought down yeah. and or ends the relationship. Yeah. Um, so how can a secure person and we can talk we can talk theoretically now. How can mm -hmm. a secure person or someone who believes they're functioning from a secure place of, of, of relationship and attachment set and enforce boundaries with an insecure person without feeling guilt, shame, 
let's just stick with guilt and shame because we can go down a whole list because like the first thing that's gonna and and again we've talked about this professionally and, and other the second you set a boundary with anyone that you haven't set a boundary with before it's like trying to break a horse they're gonna buck and shout and throw you off and you're the worst why are you doing this to me da, 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 da. you've changed how can someone coming from a place of security set appropriate boundaries without feeling like what they're doing is wrong yeah first i would say that if you're securely attached you're going to have way less of a problem setting boundaries mm. um so you're going to be able to recognize that um boundaries are important for your for your own well-being secure people are going to tend to look after themselves first which isn't a bad thing that's that's not that's not egotistical uh, xyz like you're putting yourself first and that and that's okay um, so secure people are probably not going to feel shame about boundaries. They might feel guilt because they love the person, um, but they're probably not going to feel shame. Um, and so, but what I would say about how to better navigate that is have a conversation with your insecure partner about what needs went unmet and how can I set a boundary with you that doesn't trigger those unmet needs. Mm -hmm. And so I would put it on the insecure person Ooh. to kind of set the boundary themselves. Like I would be like, you know, I need to set a boundary with you. I'm afraid of feeling guilt. I'm afraid of triggering you. What do you think is an appropriate way for me to set this boundary without triggering you into acting out? Um, because the insecure person does have responsibility yeah. in the relationship. And so I would start that with a conversation of like, you know, like I need to know what your unmet needs are. If you don't know, go find out and then come back. Um, but what are your unmet needs and how can I set this boundary with you without you falling apart? Yeah. Um, but then reminding the insecure person that they have they have a responsibility to stay intact. They have a responsibility to not fall into shame themselves when someone sets a boundary with them. And that's that's going to be hard for the insecure person for sure. That's really good. As someone, uh, just to speak real quick to Caleb's earlier question and tie the two questions in, I've unexpectedly come to work with a lot of couples in, in my practice and I actually love love it. I might like there there's a reality down the road where I just do couples work because that's it. I love it so much. Um what you tend to see a lot of times is if two insecure people are with one another, without fail, you're either having it typically like I'd say 80% of the time, an avoidantly attached person with an insecurely attached person. Right. And so in those conflictual moments, the avoided person is retreating into themselves because they're afraid or don't know how to verbalize what they need because they haven't done it for so long. Right. When you talk about this concept of unmet needs, how an avoidant individual got to that point was they stopped expressing the needs because they didn't think the need would come. So they've learned to sort of just keep everything in. And so when conflict comes up, there is no trust or space that that person can actually voice what's going on if they even know what how to identify what it is i see a lot of my male clients like that where call it society you know jess you said earlier this notion that like we we failed men on an emotional level a lot of men learn to deny self and or sorry not not deny self but to try and rely solely on self and so when it comes to expressing needs, there's those needs go unmet by the people in their life because there's no space or they don't feel that there's space for them to express and then actually get hurt and get those needs met. So the insecure or the avoidant person is going to retreat, which is going to trigger the anxious person 
who's going to badger and try and like, no, 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 what's going on? Let's figure this out. Let's figure this out, which is going to overwhelm the hell out of the avoided person. <laughs> and then now we're on a cycle, right? Because yeah. the more the avoidant distances, the more the anxious person pursues. Mm -hmm. And what you have to do in those moments when it comes to boundaries, and the same I think goes for a secure person, is the avoidant person needs that space. And so the avoidant person needs the boundary of take all the time you need to kind of sort whatever you have to sort out. But then let's set a time to reconvene this conversation because that's what the anxiously attached person needs. They need to know that space doesn't mean I'm leaving. And space also doesn't mean that this is going to get swept under the rug and we're never going to address this. Yeah. So it's let's take two hours and then let's reconvene and hash this out. Or let's take the night and let's talk about this again tomorrow. That balance there typically is good for helping both people get their needs met because the anxious person knows, okay, I can stick it out until two more for two hours. And the avoided person is like, cool, I get two hours to cool off, kind of collect my thoughts and figure out what it is that. I want to say or need to need to express. Yeah. yeah, one thing to add to that too that um, my avoidant clients hate is that the avoidant has every right to say, "I want to take a break right now from this from this conversation from this fight." They're more than able to say that, and they also have to be the one to reinitiate the conversation. Then. If they are going to say, we need to take a break, they also need to be able to, to be the one that comes back and says, okay, I'm ready. Let's, let's reinitiate. And I think that that tends to be, obviously initiating those hard conversations is so difficult. Um, and so that's what I always will say to my avoidant clients. Like, well, I'm allowed to step away. I'm like, yes, you absolutely are, but you can't just step away and leave it. You have to step away and, and then you have to come back. Cause that and is that called be, abandonment. That is called abandonment. Yes. Yeah. Mm, man. Yeah. I know this is an audio podcast, but I'm literally like having a hard time saying still in my seat because this information is so good. It's so, so good. And I think it's so crucial that in our own personal work, we look inward and try and understand what those inner parts of ourselves are trying to say to our present self what needs are trying to get met and how our attachments are relaying those messages to the people around us. Yeah. Absolutely. You're allowed to set boundaries. Absolutely. You're allowed to take a break. Absolutely. You're allowed to walk away. And it's also like your job to go back, right? Mm -hmm. Can't just say I'm setting a boundary and I'm not allowing you to violate my boundaries anymore. Okay. Well, did you explain what the boundary is or did you just say i'm setting a boundary okay yeah. a boundary without vulnerability is just an excuse yeah. or avoiding like you said yeah i think um yeah speaking of boundaries um and the difference between secure and insecure is insecure less able to stand by their boundaries secure people will set a boundary and they will respect their own boundary and they will continue to re-implement it an insecure person who sets a boundary um, has a hard time following through with that boundary. I think, too, a lot of times as we're on the topic of boundaries is that there's a misconception about what a boundary is. Say it a boundary again. when Please someone stop. says, say, like... Say it again. Say that. <laughs> say that again for all the people there in the There is a back. misconception about what a boundary is and also gaslighting, which we can get into. But for now, boundaries... <laughs> 
<laughs> boundaries. A boundary isn't, you cannot raise your voice with me. That is not a boundary. A boundary is, if you raise your voice with me, I am going to leave the room. So there has to be the thing you're not going to tolerate and what you're going to do if they continue to use that behavior. So I think there's there's a lot of like, people like to throw out the word boundary all the time of like, you broke my boundary. It's like, no, you didn't set a boundary. Like you have to be able to say like, you cannot raise your voice with me. And if you do, I am going to leave the conversation. So there's two parts to that boundary. And people who are insecurely attached are gonna have a really hard time following through with the second part of the boundary that they set mm. because they fear abandonment. So I think that's a that's a big part of, of the difference in boundaries with those two types of individuals. Major key, major keys. Yeah. yeah. You said something too, uh, Mook, you said a boundary without vulnerability. Again, coming from my own personal experience as well as clinically working with couples, there's also, I think, a really um, big difference between a demand, a boundary that sounds like a demand, right? In Jess's example, you can't raise your voice at me. Okay. Um, someone's going to be much more willing, especially in a romantic partnership, to be open to understanding and actually adhere, be more willing to adhere to that boundary when it's attached with the reasoning or the rationale, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the part a lot of people... Um, especially those who, from my experience, have had that avoidant kind of um, makeup is the extra step to say, here's why. I, I grew up in an environment where yelling was super triggering for me. It, it makes me feel anxious. It makes me feel like something bad is going to happen. When you do that and then you set the boundary, and I would also add just for like a little finesse, make it a request versus a demand, right? Hey, this is this thing that puts me into a negative state of mind. As my partner, I'm asking, can you help me by not doing that so I maintain regulated? <laughs> that person's gonna hear that much differently than you can't raise your voice to me and if you raise your voice, I'm leaving the room. Yeah. Because you can attach that emotion to it. And if you're in a good relationship, a healthy one, um, even with, even a relationship with some attachment challenges, there's going to be a genuine level of care and your partner's not going to want to put you in a state of, you know, being dysregulated and fearful and triggered. And so they're going to hear that and go, okay, yeah, I get that. Yeah. Holy, never knew that that was your experience growing up. Mm -hmm. I got you. I'll do my best to try and not raise my voice. That has like 85 fold more success rate than just, this is my boundary. And there's what I'm going to do if you cross it. 1,000%. So, yeah, agreed. Mm -hmm. And from a last thing on that, from a men's perspective, to tie it back to men, that's the part we struggle with. Is like, yeah. man, attach that emotion to it. Yeah. Hook that vulnerability onto it at the end to let your partner know where it is you're coming from. That's going to be hard and that's going to be vulnerable, especially for us. But we're going to be much more... Our partners are going to be more willing and able to hear where we're coming from and actually yeah. meet our need when we're able to make that comma at the end and say, okay, here's the emotion behind it. I do get fearful. I do get scared. Yeah. I do get anxious. I do fear you leaving me. Yeah. You know, we, we can work on that. And I think a big part of why that's difficult for men is that they don't know. Like a lot of guys, like let's, let's continue with this example of being triggered by yelling. Like, 
the guy probably doesn't know that like trigger or yelling is triggering because I was raised in an environment where it was really scary or anger was displayed in a really inappropriate and rageful way. And so it's, it's, yeah, I, I would imagine just from the, the male clients I've worked with is that, you know, that they don't really know why that triggers them. They just know that they get very dysregulated or, or whatever example you want to use. And so that, that again is the really important part of like men being able to go to therapy and discover like, what are their triggers? Why, why when she or he or they does this, why is that so triggering for me? Um, so yeah, I think that would be my hypothesis. <laughs> Excellent point. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, that feels like a good place, you know, for today to kind of wrap up. I feel like we could talk hours upon hours yes. on attachment. And, uh, you know, now that you've been on once, Jess, we can always hit your line and have you come back to talk more. But we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your perspective with us. Uh, before we adjourn, any last final words for for anybody um, that maybe, you know, points you wanted to get across that you didn't get a chance to share uh, before we kind of sign off? Men, go to therapy, please. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> a nice melodic, with a nice melodic twist on it to make it more really sink in. Also, to all the Wonderful. men that will be listening to this, therapy, therapist shopping is normal. So if you find a therapist that you don't like, go to someone else. I think that women are pretty... Um, adept at that, like they, they know that therapist shopping is a thing. Um, not all therapists are created equal. You have to find someone. Oh, guess what? Attachment. You have to find someone that you can attach to. You have to find a therapist mm -hmm. that can attach to. If you. If you don't, if it's not a good fit, um, find someone else. 60% of therapeutic work is the attachment you have with your therapist. And so if it's not a good fit, leave, find someone else, but don't, don't quit if it's not a good fit because there are more people out there. Love that. Jess, last thing, maybe um, if there's anyone who's listening to this who wants to potentially therapist shop for you, where can they find you? So I am located in St. Louis, Missouri. Um, I am at Terrace House. Um, if you are from St. Louis, it is downtown Lafayette Square, um, I don't take insurance, but I do have sliding scale. So, um, it can get as low as $60, uh, or as high as 160. Um, so depending on, depending on your income, what can, you can afford, um, we will absolutely work with you. So, um, I am private practice am accepting new clients. Um, that is where I'm at. Wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us this, this evening our second installment of the Love Like a Man mini-series. Um, for listeners, as always, episodes will come out weekly. So if you heard something that you uh, that resonated with you today, or if you know um, someone in your life, a man, or someone who interacts with men, so virtually everybody or anybody mm -hmm. that could take something of value away from this podcast, please share it with someone in your life. Um, and make sure you do all that good stuff. Like, subscribe, uh, leave a comment, leave a rate, leave a review. Um, so on and so forth. We would greatly appreciate it. And until next time, we've been the Men's Wellness Collective with special guest Jess Jones. Take care. We will see you then.